Good morning and welcome to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. Um, and answering the phones for us today is the prickly John Dunn. If you want to join the conversation, give John a call at 813-239-9663. He'll get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. It's March 1st, the first day of Women's History Month. And today's Wavemaker is a woman making history every day, Jennifer Yagley, CEO of the St. Petersburg Free Clinic. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Um, the clinic was founded 52 years ago to provide affordable health care, but has evolved into so much more. There's a food bank serving thousands, as well as transitional housing for the homeless, um, transportation assistance, all kinds of assistance. Um, how, did, uh, how did the pandemic affect your operations? You guys have been really, really busy. We have been extraordinarily busy, and... As you can imagine, um, COVID exacerbated community concerns and needs that existed prior to the pandemic. And then with the onset of COVID, given the shutdown of the economy um, and, and health disparities and everything you know, that happened as a result of, of all of us responding to the pandemic, our need and demand for our services just skyrocketed. Uh, personally, I started with the free clinic on about March 1st of mm. 2020. So I don't know the free clinic pre-COVID. That's I had either about, great timing or really terrible timing I've, for I've you. I've come to look at it as really great timing because all I know is COVID operations well, this at the is, free clinic. This is an astounding number. So 2019, it was 11.3 million pounds of food distributed, nearly double in 2021 to 20.4 20. um, million pounds of food distributed. That's right. So when we... Um, we started distributing food and, and became a community food bank back in the 80s. And over time, grew steadily to be able to provide more food relief, both through our food bank, which was relatively small, and then also through our front-facing food pantry. And when we built our standalone Jared S. Hedgecoff Community Food Bank and opened mm-hmm. that in 2017, at the time, we thought 10 million pounds of food a year distributed out into the community will create a food-secure Pinellas County. Um, And then things began to inch up from there even before COVID. And so we hit 11 million pounds, to your point, you know, just over in 2019. In 2020, it was 15.4 million. Um, And then last fiscal year, we wrapped up at 20.4 million pounds of food, which is absolutely staggering, especially considering that the need has not decreased even in the slightest. And in fact, we're seeing it go up. Well, Is that uh, distributed through one location? Uh, You mentioned food pantry versus food bank. Can you explain how that? Yeah, absolutely. So our food bank is the back-end warehouse where we store food and then truck it out or have people come pick it up. We serve approximately 50 partners throughout Pinellas County to whom we deliver food or who pick up food from us in bulk. One of our partners, if you will, is our own food pantry. And so we distribute food to ourselves that we then give out through our We Help Services Fresh Pantry. We also provide food to our residential programs and to our health center, as well as, again, approximately 50 other partners throughout the county, other nonprofits, assisted living uh, centers, other shelters, to make sure that whatever food relief needs they have at the neighborhood level, we're able to help them meet. And is that every day someone can get? That is every day. So we operate the well, it's every day, five days a week, Monday through Friday. So our drivers start at about five o'clock in the morning. They pick up from area donations from area grocery stores, as well as receive donations from other large partners in food banks, um, as well as receive 
uh, purchases from large food distributors um, from the bulk foods that we purchase all to to create the full tapestry uh, of the food that we pull together and then distribute out. So we're talking about the St. Petersburg Free Clinic, but what we've been talking about so far is food distribution. So how does food distribution fit into, you started as a free clinic, into the mission of being a free clinic. Right. So we were, again, founded in 1970, so 52 years ago, as a health center for people who otherwise could not afford health care. And so by visiting us, um, adults without health insurance could access primary care, specialty care services, a whole range of medical, uh, meet their range of medical and health care needs. So in the 80s, we then began adding food relief and shelter services. Um, all of that as evolution came as a result of stepping into gaps to meet community need. And so the free clinics ethos has always been, you know, where there is a need that is going unmet, if it is related to health, and we find that that is within our mission, we want to step into that gap. And so that's how we evolved from the the pure medical model mm-hmm. um, and no-cost healthcare um, into even evolving the services under that umbrella, including dental care and diabetes education, prescription support, um, so those services have grown over the years as well, in addition to adding on these significant food relief operations and then transitional housing. Yeah, prescription support is really interesting that you're they're offering that. That's uh, a big a big deal, and that's expensive medications, insulin and that sort of thing. It is critical. People can get. It is critical. About 50% of the medication support that we provided last calendar year was insulin and diabetes-related education. Excuse me, medication. Um Incredibly cost prohibitive. Mm-hmm. Lots of folks skip insulin doses, which can be life threatening, certainly health threatening, um, because it is absolutely unaffordable for folks without insurance. Yeah, I want to. I want to give it a little, a few more numbers to talk about your growth. So, you dental. You started. Um, you've had dental patient visits for a while, but you had eleven dental patients in two thousand eleven. Ten years later, nineteen hundred dental patients. That is a huge growth. And is this are these services being provided free by the dentist? How does that work? What is what is the relationship between the free clinic and the people who are actually providing the services? Yeah, so the services are free. So the free clinic model, which is part of a national model of free or a national network of free clinics, and we have our statewide network as well. But the free clinic model is based on volunteers providing direct care. So in our free clinic, we have a clinical staff, um, particularly on the health center side. So we have nurse practitioners, an RN, and a contracted chief medical officer who are paid. Um, But the majority of our providers and almost all of our providers on the dental side are volunteers. So we work with uh, the the State Department of Health to... um, to have our volunteers become eligible um, and and serve in our clinic without without potential penalty to them, if you will. So they operate under um, sovereign immunity, which means they can come in and serve as volunteers delivering medical services and are able to do that under our umbrella specifically. And so we benefit greatly um, from just the generosity and service of, you know, dozens mm-hmm. of dentists, physicians, nurse practitioners, um, RNs, any number. We have uh, medical transcriptionists, all kinds of medical service providers who want to volunteer and make a difference that we're able to bring in um, and help support our community. You um, have a saying at the uh, free clinic, um, health is a catalyst for equity. Um, So it sounds like you have a mission that's a little broader than just providing some free health services. Tell us about that. 
So everything that we do responds to social determinants of health. And so social determinants of health are all of the things that people need to keep them broadly healthy, whether that is safe and affordable housing, quality education, actual access to medical care, healthy food, all of these things that that, that roll together to make mm-hmm. sure that we can access everything we need in the community to keep us safe and healthy. So all of these social determinants then, if everybody is getting what they need equitably, then we have a community that is grounded in health equity. At the free clinic, everything that we do rolls up under this health equity umbrella. So even if it looks a little bit different, you say, well, housing, that's awfully different than medical care. But if you look at social determinants of health and what people need, again, to stay healthy and to promote health equity in a community, it is housing, it is healthy food, it is access to health care, it is dental care. And so that is how our services are unified, is under this umbrella of health equity. Well, you also are doing things like... um some utilities assistance, right? You offer utility assistance. Absolutely. So part of our client advocacy division is providing supports that are absolutely critical but could seem small but make all of the difference to, to folks. So, for example, we provide utility assistance. We we help people pay their water bills, mm-hmm. um, which if you can imagine getting your water shut off um, could be, you know, it's a nightmare. You don't have access to water. Um, it's difficult to get it turned back on. And so we actually provide financial support for people to not have that happen and pay their bills. We make sure um, if people need an ID, a Florida state ID or a driver's license, we facilitate that process for them. We work with um, a number of folks who are coming out of incarceration and just don't have an ID. They have employment lined up, but clearly can't can't obtain that employment um, without an identification card. And so it's this whole cycle. And so these small things that, that, that seem small actually make a, a huge difference in people's lives. Um, and so that's part of our client advocacy division where we do these things. And then we also connect people to services that the free clinic does not offer, knowing that we can't do everything and want to be sure that if folks need something else, we want to give them a warm handoff to another service that we don't provide. And I'm curious... If there are any requirements, can anyone access your services? Do you have to live in St. Petersburg? Do you have to have certain income uh, levels? How does that work? So we serve Pinellas County as a whole in all of our programs. Every program is a little bit different in terms of eligibility. Um, In our food programs, for example, we keep things as barrier-free and simple as possible. So we require folks to be Pinellas County residents. We ask them to just bring something that shows us that they are. Maybe that's a driver's license or a utility bill or just give us your zip code. Um, And then they receive food. Our our philosophy is that if you are are here, you are visiting a food pantry, um, you need this support and we're happy to give it to you. No questions asked. That's right. In our health center, um, because of our partnership with the Department of Health and our volunteer providers, um, there are a couple of other eligibility requirements for those whom we serve there. So everybody we serve lacks health insurance, first and foremost, and then also has some income requirements they have to certify that they meet. So they have to be at a certain percent of um, federal poverty. Where do you get that expensive diabetes medication? So we work with... (laughs) (laughs) So the way our prescription health program works is that we have somebody who coordinates and facilitates relationships directly with prescription drug companies. Most prescription drug companies have their own foundations and avenues where they provide a certain amount of community support in the form of no-cost medication. But you essentially have to have like a broker who can help connect qualified patients to those medications. And it's really difficult for individuals to navigate all of that on their own. 
And so organizations like ours tend to have programs like this. So we do that navigation navigation for the patient, make those connections, and then they're in the system. They can go to any pharmacy that they would ordinarily go to, um, and that that drug is then paid for, and it's brokered through that actual prescription drug company. Is that um, only, what other medications? I mean, can you get antibiotics that way? Do get they anything. do? I mean, there's there's really any and all medications. It's a matter of um, what is available from the drug companies themselves, um, how we can, again, broker that relationship, and, and what all is out there. And we also work with... Um, <clears throat> partners like Direct Relief, mm-hmm. where we can also obtain um, some prescription and over-the-counter drugs that we can have on hand. So if you'll think about, you know, if you're at your doctor's office and there are samples for certain meds, we have some of those things on hand as well that we're able to distribute to patients so that if they need something prior to kind of getting in the system of our prescription health program, we can meet that need, meet that need more immediately. Now, another part of your um, uh, services involves um, education, particularly nutrition Health, is this part of the uh, equity approach? Absolutely. And tell us about that. Sometimes when we talk about food security or food insecurity, the focus of the conversation is on hunger. And that's a very hard thing to define. So we recognize that, yes, it is important that people who are hungry are not hungry. However, the other piece to that, the equity piece, is the nutrition aspect. So it's one thing to have enough calories in a day. It's another thing to have the right mix of mm-hmm. healthy foods to keep you healthy, to keep kids performing well in school because they have adequate nutrition. And so that, in addition to access to food, which obviously is a, is a component of equity, there's also the overlay of, is that food nutritious? Is it accessible? Um, do families have easy recipes with ingredients that are, you know, three ingredients that you can pretty easily find in a pantry that's not super complicated so mm-hmm. they know how to maybe prepare a... I don't know, a cauliflower. I mean, I if I I don't know how to make cauliflower. You know, I'm not a great right? I'm not a great cook, and so I don't know if I would know how to prepare. <laughs> and a we can talk meal. after the show. I'll yeah. hook you up on the cauliflower recipes. <laughs> so we try, you know, so we try to provide recipes, tips, um, and and really bridge that gap between hunger and nutrition to to take a few more steps toward a truly equitable um, community when we're thinking about food and how people access and consume food. Well, have you seen your clientele change? Sort of the demographics of your clientele. In the last couple of years, tell, tell us a, who who who's getting services. It's such a good question, and I think that you know those of us who have been involved in the nonprofit sector for a lot of years, like me, we know that there is no one quote unquote type of person who accesses services at a nonprofit organization. Sometimes folks who are outside of of the nonprofit sector, you know, we sort of have stereotypical views of of what someone looks like who may come. We we may picture somebody who appears chronically unhoused or, you know, certain pictures of folks, right? But what I'll tell you is that any and everybody um, needs help sometimes. And we work really hard to reduce stigma around who and why somebody may find themselves in a circumstance to visit an organization like the Free Clinic. What we have found, particularly over these last two years during COVID, um, is that we're serving teachers. We are serving hospital workers. We are serving your server at the restaurant. We are serving working artists. What COVID did was really make food relief and the services that we offer necessary. There are a lot of folks who could have used our help prior to the pandemic and for whatever reason felt like this isn't for me. I have a job. I'm not making a lot of money. I'm struggling to make ends meet. 
but that's not for me. I can get by, I can make it. Even though their pantries are bare and their fridge is empty, they're feeling like they have to you know, white knuckle through that mm-hmm. and not reach out for help. And then when COVID happened and so many people were furloughed or they did immediately lose their job you know, from one day to the next, the reality that so many people are truly living paycheck to paycheck hit home. And the lines outside of our food pantry went absolutely around the block and stayed that way and are still that way today. Because not only are we continuing to try to normalize that it is okay to seek help, that in this economy, lots of people really need support with groceries and medical bills and the economic burdens that we help offset. Um, But the economy keeps getting harder and harder. Yeah, inflation is what it is. Gas prices are going up. uh, Food prices are going up. And and wages are not. That's right. That's right. And so, you know, again, um, pre-COVID data in Pinellas County tells us that 46% of our neighbors in Pinellas County are either living in poverty, so they are at that federal poverty line or below. 46%? Yes, or, or they are part of what's called the asset-limited, income-constrained, and employed population, hmm. which is an acronym that the United Way developed some years ago and has done research on. It's what we used to call the working poor, and now mm-hmm. we refer to this community of folks as the Alice population. Okay. And so 46% of Pinellas County residents pre-COVID were considered to either be living in poverty or in the Alice population, meaning that they didn't, their, their paychecks were not enough to allow them to meet increasing costs and just basic necessities. So imagine pre-COVID. Now with the advent of COVID and with inflation, it is beyond a crisis for people to be able to afford housing, groceries. And so that's why, again, the lines outside of our food pantry are longer than ever. I think a lot of people are not aware of how uh, challenging life is for many of the people who live in the Tampa Bay area. <clears throat> as many evictions as we have seen in the last several months, the reality is that pre-COVID, the evictions were in the hundreds every month. And so I, I think uh, what you're dealing with is something that's almost... It's not a secret, obviously. A lot of people are aware of it. But I'm not sure people realize how difficult it is. What do you think, WMNF listeners? If you'd like to join the conversation, call us at 813-239-9663 or email us at dj at wmnf.org. Or you can text us at 813-433-0885. Are you having any challenges yourself? Do you have any questions for Jennifer, we yeah, do have an email uh, from a listener. Mo um, asks, do you help with procedures like dialysis while waiting for emergency Medicaid and disability to be approved? That's such a good question. We do not currently. One of the biggest strategic goals that we have in the coming months and years is to better be able to and to directly meet those secondary healthcare needs between primary care and emergency care. We wanna keep people healthy and out of the ER. And there is a huge gap um, in services like dialysis or endoscopies or simple surgical procedures where people are able to access perhaps some primary care like ours Mm -hmm. and even some specialty care. We have a cardiologist, for example, a neurologist, but we do not currently do procedures. So as a result of that, when we're able to diagnose someone and perhaps they have a care plan or a treatment plan, we often don't have anywhere to send them to get that next level of care. 
Um, and that's a huge concern for us, as you can imagine, a huge concern for our providers who desperately want to be able to provide the care, the next level care um, for folks that they need. And so we're working with our hospital partners and our network of providers to see how we can build that out and slowly make sure that we can add more procedures um, and more care to our mix of services because it's a huge gap and a critical need. Now, you also, we've talked about food. We've talked about um uh, medical care. We've talked about dental care. We've talked about utility assistance. You also have some residential facilities, one for men and one for women. How many beds do those have? And, and tell us who those are for. So we have uh, 28 beds in our men's residence and we have 50 beds in our Baldwin women's residence. We serve folks who are experiencing homelessness, so they do not have a stable place to live, and they are in recovery um, from substance use. We require that they um, have 30 days of sobriety in order to qualify for our housing program, so we are not a detox facility. Mm -hmm. And we are a transitional um, housing facility where, where we know that if we can provide stability in housing and some wraparound supports around obtaining and maintaining employment and regaining some stable footing, you know, in sobriety, facilitating relationships with family and helping people get back on their feet, that we can then transition folks back out into the community into permanent living situations with ongoing recovery. And that timeline is very different for everyone. And so one of the unique aspects of our housing programs is we don't have time limits on length of stay. Um, it's not an arbitrary within 60 days, mm -hmm. you're fine, time to go, or within 90 days. Um, and that is because we have the great, great fortune of being privately funded, which means we don't have to put, we, we can control um, many things that when you're not privately funded, you have a lot of, uh, a lot more rules that you have to operate by. And so we're able to, to allow people to stay as long as they need. Uh, and speaking of funding, that's a, you bring up a very interesting point. It's a, a big operation. Um, what thirty million dollar budget? Oh, how big is your budget? Forty million dollar budget this year. Forty million. Um, and our actuals in the fiscal year that we just closed were thirty four million. Wow! Mm -hmm. And where do you get all that money? I, I'm looking at your annual report, and it's quite a big pie with lots of different slices of uh, money. And I noticed that last year, a good portion, eighteen percent, uh, came. At least this was the food, I guess, came from CARES Act funding. But overall, where does your money come from? So we are. Um, supported in large part by very generous individual donors who have contributed over, in some cases, decades um, to the free clinic. And so we're, we're very fortunate in that. So I want to say, uh, looking at your report, 70% of your revenue, of your $33 million, is from contributions. That's right. That's right. That's and huge. That is, that's huge. And that is both, so that's contributions from um, generous individual donors, from the business community, um, civic organizations, faith groups, and then that also includes the in-kind donations of food that we receive that then go back out into the community. So all of that is part of that contributions piece, which is the largest portion of the support that we receive. And I want to say that you got, um, point this out, 11% of your budget goes to personnel, which I think is always interesting to point out. You've got a $33 million budget, 11% goes to personnel, relatively small. You've got 81% is direct assistance. So a good part of that money is going right to um, the people who need it. That's absolutely right. And what I, what I would say about that is um, we are a little too lean. Uh, we grew very quickly and needed to, in the years prior to COVID, to meet community demand and now even more so as a result of COVID. And so we um, feel pretty strongly that, you know, a nonprofit like any other organization needs staff to do effective work. 
And so even though we, we, we're proud to operate lean, we know that we need to continue to add on to our personnel, to some of our expenses to make sure that we can continue serving the community. And so those numbers are likely going to inch up as we go forward so we can keep meeting critical demand. Um, we also, I, I, we had someone who tuned in late who wants to know what is the location for these services, Doug? I, it's available to everybody in Pinellas County, but your physical space is located where? So our drive through food pantry is at 863 3rd Avenue North in downtown St. Petersburg. We are open from 8.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Monday through Wednesday. It's a COVID-safe drive through And then from 8.30 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Thursdays. So we're open a little bit longer on Thursdays. Our health center is located at 5501 4th Street North. Um, and that is a, in order to to qualify for those services and get into our medical or dental clinic, which is also at that same location, um, there is a, a brief qualification process. And so you'd want to um, call ahead to to um, to access those services. But certainly the food pantry is drive up. And if people want to donate, uh, whether it's uh, money, time, or clothing, food, what, what it, how can they help? So visit our website at thespfc.org. We have a new wonderful website that we just launched last fall. And there you can find a link to donate actual, you know, make financial contributions. We've got a page for volunteer support um, where you can indicate your interest to volunteering in various ways and also find the contact information for our director of volunteer services. You can learn more about the whole mix of what we do and, and any number of ways that you can plug in and support. Now, you just gave your website, um, SPFC, um, St. Petersburg Free, Free Clinic is your name. You offer so much have you thought about changing your name to make it clear that it's not just a free clinic? Oh, have we? <laughs> so we, um, because COVID wasn't enough to respond to, <laughs> we decided that in the middle of responding to a global pandemic, we would take up a rebranding effort. We had, as an organization, considered that, you know, over the course of the last decade or so and and had never had never moved forward on it because of the significant brand equity that we have in the name St. Petersburg Free Clinic. So it was really important for us to refresh our website, our visuals, our logo, and to go through the exercise of exploring what a name change um, might look like, whether or not that was the right choice. And what we learned through a really intentional process and in talking with stakeholders and focus groups was that a full name change wasn't going to be in our best interest. We did not want to lose the brand equity and the affection for an understanding that people have when they think St. Petersburg Free Clinic. At the same time, we really wanted people to start not just identifying us as a health or medical center. And so we went to SPFC, St. Pete Free Clinic, as our name. So we're still doing business as the St. Petersburg Free Clinic. But if you look at our logo, we're really trying to lead with that acronym so that over time, people start to think of us as SPFC, Mm-hmm. Sort of like the transformation you think about the YMCA, mm-hmm. same sort of steps, right? Yep. And now they're the Y and everybody knows what that is. They were the Young Men's Christian Association, right. then the YMCA, and now the Y. That's right. And so we really, you know, we didn't want to completely depart, um, again, from that brand equity, the beloved name. Um, and we knew we needed to start giving people a slightly different picture and overview in our name and our tagline of who we are and what we do. So our new tagline is Serve People, Feed Compassion. Mm-hmm. Which again, Serve People, Feed Compassion. Which has a couple different meanings to it. If you think mm-hmm. about it. And so we really felt like that captured um, in an abstract way in any case, um, and both concrete and abstract, what we do. Well, you talk about the brand equity when Tom and I were telling 
folks that we were going to have you on the show and feature the St. Pete Free Clinic, people respond really strongly to that with affection and and they talk about the founder. Everybody knows the name of the founder. Sister Margaret. Sister Margaret Freeman is famous in in these parts. So she um she joined the organization in 1976. So we were actually founded in 1970 by Butch Anderson. But Sister Margaret Freeman um, is the leader who who served, you know, who led the organization for 15 years and really um, developed more services and brought more programs into our mix. Um, to hear people talk about her, she was a master fundraiser. People loved her. She was very charismatic, and so really um, evolved the organization into sort of the foundation for where we find ourselves mm-hmm. today. It was really established by Sister Margaret Freeman. So we actually have a foundation in her name that is a separate organization that exists for the support of the free clinic. We have a, an annual award that we give in her name. Um, so we continue to honor her um, in all the ways that, that we hope are meaningful to her and, and in the many people who, who, who think of her with such affection, rightfully so. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking to Jennifer Yeagley, who's the CEO of the St. Petersburg Free Clinic. If you want to join the conversation, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email to dj at wmnf.org. And we've got Chris in Clearwater on the line. Um, Chris, you're on the line. What do you want to talk about? Oh, a couple things when it comes to food. I see that uh, there, there must be price fixing, I think, going on because when I check behind a certain uh, local store that, uh, and by the way, price fixing, folks may not know, is where grocers or even uh, manufacturers, distributors might agree on a certain minimum price that they'll charge for an item so that uh, they keep their money, but then uh, they end up throwing out, as I was mentioning, uh, when I go behind a a certain local store uh, here near downtown Clearwater, that they throw away uh, a lot of uh, certain uh, products without marking them down Hmm. um, and, uh, and in great amounts. So with the supply chain breaking down, apparently a lot of that is uh, due to uh, parent shortages aren't, I don't think due to shortages, I think it's due to price fixing and I know they're... Oh, so you think that they're intentionally throwing out their supplies so that they can charge higher prices? Absolutely. Mm. Yes. uh, Are you seeing any of that, Jennifer? What do you think? You know, we don't... I can't speak to that as we're not involved on the the back end of that and our relationship with grocers um, is is re- being in receipt of, of goods that they are donating and not throwing away. Um, mm-hmm. And so so that part I can't speak to, but what I do know is that we receive, you know, any number of, of donations every week, week from lots of local grocery stores and that, you know, our single biggest goal is to make sure that we are getting food into the hands of people who need it at no cost to them. Mm-hmm. With with no questions asked. Well, Chris, thanks for the call. We appreciate well, it. I wanted to I wanted also <clears throat> mention that there are other more equitable commerce media that uh, folks can participate in, like community currencies, barter networks, swap mm. shops, and I've started uh, Clearwater Hours, uh, which is a community currency. I'm restarting it, uh, enlisting businesses that um, I, I hadn't been able to keep up with it in the past uh, with a friend who got me started on. On um, enlisting and relisting old businesses, uh, that's clearwaterhours.com because their community currencies are time yeah. denominated. 
Because, you know, as technology improves, so should our standard of living, but that's because the economy is rigged in so many various ways that uh, would be a whole other show that our standards of living are not improving. Right. Well, you know, you you bring up an interesting point, Chris, though, and thanks for the call. Really appreciate you calling in, but um, mutual aid societies, right? People working together to help each other. Um, Uh, And Tampa has a long history of mutual aid societies like the Cuban Club. uh, Right. But... um, it, it does also speak to the importance in general of nonprofits, how it, what an important role nonprofits play in our community. Um, we were talking about how, like, WMNF is a nonprofit. Tom and I both are engaged with nonprofits. You're running a nonprofit, and we... And you've been, let's talk a little bit about you. You've been in the nonprofit world for your entire professional career, correct? Tell us a little That's bit right. about how you ended up here in, in St. Petersburg, uh, at the Tampa Bay area, leading the St. P- SPFC. And I always like to know, what did you major in in college? Yeah, so, yes. So I'm, I'm so happy to, to share that I was an English major in college. I got a bachelor's degree in English, and then I followed that up with a master's degree in English literature because one degree in lit was not enough. <laughs> Um, These I, days, they would want you to go learn how to code or something. Well, but, uh, yeah, and I mean that is—it's such a valuable skill. It wasn't my lane, um, and and so I didn't know what I wanted to do. Like so many people, you know, who knows when you're 18, 20, even 25 or older. A lot of us are figuring it out as we go. Um, but I knew that I loved to write. I knew I loved to read the critical thinking involved in that, the mm-hmm. research, you know, putting ideas down on paper. Um, those are sort of the common themes. And I really enjoyed um, working with people and working in community. And so initially I thought, oh, that, that feels like teaching. I'm going to go into teaching. Um, and then I decided to just not do that. And I can't remember now, mm-hmm. you know, 25 years ago exactly why that is, but it didn't feel like... I think the- all three of us in this room at one point considered teaching and decided... Ooh, I was yeah, going to go to the bathroom all day. Major in it. Uh, <laughs> well, and so you know, I, I have so many friends who are teachers and have such incredible respect for you know educators. It just didn't feel I, something in my gut said this isn't the right path for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't know what I wanted to do. And when I graduated with my BA in English, I did not have a job lined up. And you know, this was in 1998, so the internet was around, but certainly not how we have it today. People weren't really using it for job searches. So I did did things the old fashioned way. I created my my first resume, and I opened up the yellow pages to the nonprofit social services section hmm. because I thought, you know what, um, I, have, I have some interesting work experience that I had, you know, cobbled together at that point, and 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 some other some interesting classes, you know, some volunteer work. I wonder if this is how I can plug in and work with the community. I don't know a lot about nonprofits, but maybe I start here. And so I cold called some nonprofit organizations, and this was I was living in. Um, Central Texas at the time I graduated from what's now known as Texas State University. And I got a hold of an executive director of a domestic violence organization in Killeen, Texas, who thought it was really cool that I picked up the phone and cold called to try to get a job. Mm-hmm. And so she hired me as her administrative assistant. She said, I've got, I'm waiting for funding on a program working with middle school and high school aged youth. Um, educating them about uh, sexual harassment, teen dating violence, and bullying. And if we get that funding, I'd like for you to run that program, but I don't know if we're going to get the funding. Do you want to come work for me as my administrative assistant anyway? And I thought, absolutely. 
Um, she became my first mentor. She set me on the path of nonprofit leadership. I looked up to her. I thought I want to do what she does one day. Um, and that's kind of what set me in motion for my career in nonprofit. And as it turns out, I write and read every day for my role. And so that English degree uh, came in handy. I want to continue this discussion, but let's take a break right now. Um, we've got um, tomorrow, the president will, tonight, the president is delivering his State of the Union address. And you'll be able to listen to that here on WMNF. Um, let me tell you a little bit more about that or We'll have Sean tell you a little bit more about that. Hello, I'm WMNF's News and Public Affairs <laughs> Director, Sean Canan. This year's State of the Union address comes at a historic time for the country and the world. Because of that, WMNF will bring you President Biden's address and commentary live Tuesday night beginning at 9. It will be on our all-news channel, HD3 The Source. You can listen on the go on the WMNF app or at WMNF.org. You can also listen in your car if you have an HD radio. That's the State of the Union address live at 9 Tuesday night on WMNF's HD3 channel, The Source. Thanks for supporting Radio. That should definitely be interesting. Um, Mo is asking again, um, Jennifer, before we move on, would you, what would you suggest to people in that gap population who need medical services like dialysis? Any suggestions on where they should go? So I think that um, hospital systems like St. Anthony's Baycare, for example, in St. Petersburg, and I'm sorry, I don't know exactly where Mo is located, but they have community navigators that if Mo was to call us, um, we can help connect him. One, we can try to get him in um, for services in any case, but also can often connect folks to navigators at our partner hospital systems who can work with individual patients on a one-to-one basis to try to get them the specific care that they need. So there you go, Mo. Go ahead and give the St. Petersburg Free Clinic a call. Go to their website and um, uh, give them a call and they should be able to help connect you to services. How much of your work is delivered by volunteers? You talked about the doctors, the medical uh, personnel. Um, how many of your the work is being done by, by volunteers? You know, WMNF here is a great example of uh, a volunteer organization. A lot of the work that's being done here at the station are being done by unpaid volunteers. How about the free clinic? A whole lot. So we have um, 60 paid staff members across our entire organization we have anywhere from 250 to 300 active volunteers every month who plug in and provide services, volunteer services for us. In our We Help Fresh Pantry, that looks like 10 to 12 volunteers per shift, two to three shifts per day, showing up every day, bagging food, putting it in trunks, out under the tent, mm. outside, rain shine, 100 degrees, they're out there doing the work. We simply could not do what we do without volunteers who show up every single day to deliver our direct services. Um, Likewise, in the health center, about half of the medical services that we provide in our health center are provided by by volunteer physicians and nurse practitioners. um, And and almost 100% of our dental care is provided by volunteer dentists. So you've been in the, let's go back a little bit to talk about your journey. So you've been in the nonprofit world for 22 years. Have you seen things and you've been in different places. So you've been in, we talked earlier, you've been to Texas, San Francisco, um, and the Tampa Bay area in multiple roles. What do you see? Do things, are things the same everywhere? Or um, do you see different things in different populations and at different times? Have the need for services changed now versus what they were 15 years ago? Unfortunately, need certainly has not decreased in the time that I have been with the sector. So I have worked 
in support of domestic violence and sexual assault crisis centers. I have worked in child welfare-based organizations, community counseling, um, a multitude of human services-oriented organizations, and now obviously here with the free clinic and food relief, healthcare, and housing. And what has been consistent in my time in the sector is that need has only gotten more intense. Mm -hmm. Need has only grown. Um, The economy continues to shift in ways that don't support average folks' capability Mm -hmm. to really get ahead, let alone make ends meet on a day-to-day basis. And the trajectory has been negative in that for 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 average folks as mm-hmm. opposed to people being able to oh this is great you know wages have kept up with inflation i'm doing fine i can save money for retirement i have money in the bank if i get a blown tire um that's not really the case people are living paycheck to paycheck and sometimes not even that and so that has that has not improved um in my time do we have I, I mean do we have even more stratification it seems like we might have even more stratification these days and there's that you know it's People, as you mentioned, it's teachers, it's nurses, it's it's um, you know service workers who are needing help. Working people who are working that can't make their ends meet. That's absolutely right, and you know there is a there does seem to be a wider gap um, between you know individuals on the on the on the wealthier end of the spectrum, um, and you know we talk about the middle class going away. You hear a lot of that, you know, in different circles, and that that does seem to be the case in terms of you know just this. Um, a whole sector of folks where, you know, again, you can get ahead, you work. I mean, we have people, I I think, you know, the stereotype is that um, folks visiting a food pantry, you know, they're not working, they don't want to work, they're kind of living off the system. And we find, and in my my decades in nonprofit service, that is is not true. Um, People are not trying to siphon off or live off of systems. You know, folks are doing the absolute best they can in every possible way, no matter what their background is, um, to cobble together income and a living, to feed their families, to take care of themselves, to take care of their families. Um, and because of all kinds of circumstances, not the least of which, you know, we talk about equity, um, systemic discrimination and, and stratification and the trajectory of the economy um, really prevents people from, from getting ahead. Now, the, the homeless uh, population in St. Petersburg has been a challenge for uh, the city and elected officials for years. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who lives in St. Pete uh, last week, and he was observing that it doesn't seem to be as visible as it used to be. I, I we go back to maybe Rick Baker and you know tent slashing and things like that that was going on before. Um, is it is it just as bad, worse, or just not as visible now? What's your your take on that? So the population of individuals who are who are unhoused um, has definitely not decreased. It has in fact increased, and it is less visible. Um, that's for a lot of reasons. So there there are many different ways that people experience homelessness. And, you know, there are individuals who are living outdoors um, and and they make their home perhaps at a community park. Mm -hmm. And we're finding that with development that's happening, um, there are a lot of efforts to make sure that people are not making their homes um, in those community gathering, gathering places for all kinds of reasons. And so for those reasons, people are getting pushed out into different corners and margins 
However, there, there again, there are other ways that people experience homelessness. There are families who are living in their cars. They've lost their home because of increased rents and can't get into, you know, to another place to rent because it's too expensive. There are families doubled up in um, motels. There are individuals who are couch surfing. So there are a lot of ways um, that are far less visible than what we think that people are experiencing homelessness and we just don't see it. Well, the city of St. Petersburg did take some steps to, uh, I guess, decentralize some people who need help around Williams Park. It used to be basically a homeless gathering place. It doesn't seem to be that way. Is that the result of moving the the, the bus uh, shelters from there or or what do you think? I'm not sure exactly about situations specifically related to Williams Park, but again, I know that um, people who are unhoused are, are having to move around in different ways as a result of all kinds of factors, you know, including changes in transportation and changes in locations of services and development um, and many factors influencing that. I noticed uh, that you had a, a sizable donation uh, that you said was a, you were allowed to um, provide a f- feminine hygiene products uh, and diapers to families who need them. Now, that seems so basic. So tell us about that program and how it was started. Thank you so much for asking that question. Um, Diapers and feminine hygiene products should not be a luxury, Mm -hmm. but they're priced in a way that makes them feel like they are. So if you think about a box of diapers costing, I have a four-year-old and he's out of diapers and has been for two years, so I can't remember, I think $28 a box. And if you've got an infant, you know, infants go go through 11 to 14 diapers a day and you're Mm -hmm. going through a box in four or five days, um, that is incredibly cost prohibitive. And so, you know, the um, former health equity reporter for the Tampa Bay Times did an excellent story about a year and a half ago about the prohibitive cost of diapers and how families were just not changing their children's diapers or they were, you know, going to cloth diapers, which is fine, but don't have the laundry facilities to really keep Mm -hmm. up with that or reusing diapers, washing out disposable diapers or letting their kids go without. Well, if you have a young child in diapers who who you can't put in diapers, that means you can't go to work because they can't go to daycare Mm -hmm. because you have to supply your own diapers. So it's this whole cycle. Um, Likewise with feminine hygiene products, there are young women who cannot afford these because they are so expensive, they stay out of school because they can't go to school when they have their period because they don't have the right products to take care of that. Um, likewise with you know women who are, who are going into workplace settings and don't have feminine hygiene products. So it's a very hidden, um, I think even still a little bit taboo, you know, health, public health issue um, that we don't talk about enough. Mm-hmm. And because we have a donor, several donors, in fact, but one in particular, um, a, a family that are incredibly passionate about this particular issue, um, provided an, a very generous donation for us specifically to provide diapers and feminine hygiene for families who need it. Um, and, and they are flying off the, the proverbial shelves, if you will, because the demand is so extraordinarily high. Hmm. That's incredible. Um, so listeners, if you'd like to join this conversation, please call 813-239-9663 or email us at dj at wmnf.org or you can text us at 813-433-0885. What about it? Do you need some help? Can the St. Pete Free Clinic help you? Or do you have some time to volunteer to help the St. Pete Free 
clinic. So tell us how somebody can get in touch with you to volunteer again, because our listeners come and go during this show, and I want to make sure that they know how they can spend some time with you. Thank you. So visit thespfc.org. Please don't go to spfc.org. That's the Smashing Pumpkins fan club (laughs) website. We learned that the hard way (laughs) when we printed it wrong on a couple of our new marketing materials. So you want to go to thespfc.org. You visit the How to Help uh, drop down and click on Volunteer. And you will learn about our current volunteer opportunities, as well as how to get in touch with our director of volunteer services, who is extraordinarily helpful, and she will absolutely get you plugged in to where you can help. And this is Jennifer Yagley, the CEO of the St. Petersburg Free Clinic. Jennifer, what is the biggest challenge you guys are facing right now as an organization? So we have run out of space. Mm. We were already pushing the boundaries of space in our facilities pre-COVID, um, now we are, we went from serving 6,000 people a month indoors at our client choice food pantry pre-COVID to now continuing to serve upwards of 20,000 people every single month outdoors wow. in our drive through So we know we've got to get out of our drive through We've got to give people some choice back in their selection of, of foods. Um, this was always going to be a temporary solution. We need our parking lot back. Um, so we are now in the process of identifying what we are going to look like going forward. In the coming months, we'll have more official information on this, but... You know, we will be bringing back our client choice food pantry, move back inside, but we will also be opening up new drive-through sites to accommodate the volume that we're now seeing to be able to meet the need um, and to provide more access. Mm-hmm. So that's one of our solutions to space. Likewise, in our food bank, um, you know, as we had talked about, we went from distributing 11 million pounds of food two years ago to over 20 million pounds this last year. Um, in our in our wonderful, amazing new food bank, we've now outgrown it. And so we are looking to um, move into a larger f- expanded food bank facility. We will continue to operate out of the one we have, but we also have to expand there. We have also identified some partner sites for expanding our healthcare services because last year... Um, 35% of our patients were new. So, you know, we're continuing to grow in new patients served in the health center, um, and we just need more space to be able to accommodate all of this need. Do you anticipate this, the need to keep on growing? Um, or are we just in unusual times right now? I do. I think that we kept expecting, you know, kind of a COVID spike and then things would level out. And we now have settled into the reality that this is our new normal. And it is our new normal um, because of some of the things we talked about prior in that, frankly, the economy um, and knowing that inflation has hit people so hard and that they need uh, the support that we provide, that that is not going to change anytime soon. And and at the same time, we've really tried to reduce stigma um, around you know engaging with an organization like the Free Clinic, normalizing it is okay to need help, please reach out. We're going to ask as few questions as possible. It is a friendly um, service with a smile. You know, you don't mm-hmm. have to justify a bunch of things to come get help. And so, for those reasons, we think that this is absolutely our new normal, and that people will continue, in large measure, to rely on us um, to reduce the significant economic and healthcare burdens that they face on a day to day basis. Now, you some of the stuff that we're talking about. So, we've got inflation, and then and wages aren't growing. We've got access to healthcare, which we know is a huge issue in this country. We have access to transportation, which is a huge issue in in our region. Um, Do you guys do any advocacy to actually try to um, change policy to address this, the issue with the root cause? So we um, educate our Pinellas County delegation, our city council members, we stay in touch with our mayor. Um, We want to be sure that all of our public officials have the information that they need 
from the boots on the ground data and anecdotal support that we can provide them. When they go into their decision-making chambers, if you will, um, that they are equipped with the most accurate, relevant, up-to-date information. So in those ways, um, we see ourselves as, you know, one, um, information bearers, and we feel strongly about and, you know, talk publicly about, um, to anyone who will listen, the (laughs) need for, you know, uh, paying a living wage and making sure that we are, not waiting five years to implement that, but to the extent possible, you know, employers implementing that living wage and getting that going now, we implemented it in 2020 and we continue to inch hours up, for example, you know, $15 minimum wage. Um, That is the single biggest thing that's going to help support equity and get Mm -hmm. people out of economic distress is paying people enough to be able to afford to live. Um, And so we, you know, to the extent that that's advocacy, I mean, we, you know, we talk about that and and we want to be sure, you know, that people know that's a key solution. Want to be sure people know how to support organizations like ours and others with whom we partner that are also providing critical community support. So we collaborate. It's not just about the free clinic but about the tapestry of, of nonprofit organizations out there providing really critical services. And so, again, really information bearers, but making sure people know where we stand. And what about, I mean, you are providing free health care. It's not socialized medicine, but nonetheless, it's, it's free health care. And does that go away if we end up with health care for all or Medicare for all in this country? It, it, may, it very well might. You know, and we, um, we would like nothing more than to work ourselves out of a job. Mm-hmm. You know, we are very clear that the the context within which we must exist is because of inequity and, and because people don't have what they need to thrive. Um, I would love to see our community get to a point where everybody has what they need to thrive with housing and recovery support and nutritious food, um, healthcare, so that we can close our doors. Um, we all know as employees, we love the free clinic. We are so grateful for our for our opportunity to serve and work for this organization, and we would all be happy to go find other jobs. <laughs> so what tell a- us again how people can get involved with the St. Pete Free Clinic, because it's not just in St. Pete, right? You, you're serving a very large community, right? That's right. We serve all of Pinellas County. Uh, so wherever you are in Pinellas County, there's a way for you to plug in. The best place to learn more is at thespfc.org, where you can learn about how to donate, how to volunteer, the mix of all of our services, um, and and certainly give us a call if you need help, if you need support. Um, we're here to serve you, and we want to get you plugged in in whatever way we can. And give us that number again. Thespfc.org, or visit us on social media, uh, St. Petersburg Free Clinic on Facebook is another big way that folks plug in. You have in. a very active Facebook page, I've mm-hmm. noticed. We do. Um, Jennifer, thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. Um, and um, for to all the, those out there listening, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to the callers. Thank you to the folks who sent the emails. Um, we, uh, two weeks ago, did a fun drive here at WMNF, and we did make our goal for this show, but the station fell a tiny, tiny bit short of its goal, so it's not too late to give. You can go to WMNF.org, and you can hit the tip, tip jar and select Wavemakers if you want to contribute to this show, but any show that you want to contribute to would be great. Um, and again. Up. Coming up next is... Harrison Nash, the wonderful Harrison Nash, who always does a great job. But today is Fat Tuesday, and more Fat Tuesday music coming your way. And um, Harrison Nash will be coming on right after the NPR News. This is um, WMNF Tampa. (laughs) 